Hey, this is Joe Perry. It was the tough focus on metal. Hey, Metalheads, Scott and Richie. Finally, the time has come for us to put out the first episode of the Little Mountain Project. Uh, the very lengthy Little Mountain Project. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, but uh, I know we've been building up on this since, what, November, I think? Yeah, well, we didn't finish it until a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, we, we could have run it, I think, before now. But I, I think when we did the Strange Highways thing... Uh, we, we ran it, we got nearly two thirds of the way through, and then we got a few guys to come on at the end. Yeah. Where I think with this one, we just, we waited until it was done. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now it's just ready to go. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty complete. Um, which again, I couldn't, I can't believe I got all these guys on. Yeah. Really no, you did a great job with it. And, uh, um, they were all pretty easy to get, to get in the end. Right. Um, you know, they all. A lot of them said, "Yeah, no problem coming on." It was like the usual the scheduling. Mm-hmm. Um, and not, you know, a huge thank, big thanks to Mike Fraser mm-hmm. because other other like if Mike hadn't have given me names, some of these guys I, would, I wouldn't have got on. I wouldn't have known who they were. Right. Because when you're talking about a studio, it's the guys behind the glass. Right. You know the big names, but it's the other guys you right. don't know who they are, and even they were pretty. Uh, pretty easy to, to track down. A lot of them are still working in the business. Right. Um, had the website there, hit them up. Um, the person we have on the first episode here was, I'll, I'll explain it in a minute, was a, a roundabout way of getting him. But yeah, um, yeah, great project. I'm pretty psyched about this, to be honest. I don't think anyone's ever done anything like this before. Yeah, and I think um, I think you see that with uh, some of the feedback that you'd gotten from folks that we talked to, that they were all really looking forward to actually going back and listening to this and listening to people they haven't seen in years yeah. talk about the studio and stuff like that too. So I, like the Strange Highways album where it, that one sparked a lot of enthusiasm from the musicians, uh, this one sparked a lot of enthusiasm from musicians and a lot of the behind the scenes folks as well. Yeah, well, we asked a few of them, um, did they keep in touch and did some of them said, yeah, I keep in touch with this guy. Haven't spoken to this guy in many years. Um, so, so like, you're, talk, you're talking about a studio closing in 93, I think it was 94. Like, that's yeah. a long time ago. Right. You know, a lot of these guys are, they have different lives. Um, you know, they just fall out of touch over the years. Yeah. Some of them obviously are still in the business. Mm-hmm. Um, some, some of them aren't. And uh, I think the, the great thing, I think, about what you'll find about this project is, a lot of rock fans think that Little Mountain Sound was like this hard rock mecca, but there's a big, big story about that studio before mm-hmm. it became this hard rock, you know, yeah. iconic place when it, when Bon Jovi and Motley Crue and all these bands started to come in because, like, the studio was founded in the mid seventies, yeah, and uh, it, it had a lot of you know work go through it yeah. to get it to where it actually got to, right, yeah, and uh, we've got the people on that. You know, founded it. We, the guy who managed it, the people who worked there. We've got musicians who made albums there, and uh, they've all got. You know, all the stories are are different, but in some ways similar. Right. 
Um, they they had their lives in the studio. They worked with all these people, and but they all had different roles. Like what you'll find is, um, you know, when we have some of the name guys on. You'll know you'll know the albums they did. Right. Some of the other guys that were on, they were kind of more behind the scenes guys, engineers. Mm-hmm. They might, you know, their names mightn't pop out to you as much, but they were equally as important in that studio's right. success. Yeah, and that's the approach we're gonna we're gonna take with this one. Is you know, we when we once we get all the people that we were able to to get to do this, and as Richie said, there was scheduling. There were some people that we really wanted to get, we just weren't able to make it happen with the scheduling. Um, one of our last ones we did. Uh, I didn't think we were ever gonna be able to schedule that that sucker in, but we were. No, we got him. Finally, we're able to, which we was got great. Him. But what we're, we're gonna try to do in in rolling this out is that I know that everybody that listens, you have different you know preferences of what you like to hear on the show, and you know if we don't have discussion for a while, I, we get emails about you know, we're missing the discussion, or if we got a lot of discussion, we get emails from other folks who are well, what's with the you know. There's not enough interviews or there's, so there's always a balance we try to strike with the show. So we're going to try to do the same thing as we roll these out. And, and obviously this isn't going to be that for the next 10 weeks, all we're going to do is Little Mountain. It's going to be like we did with Strange Highways, release an episode, and then it might be three or four weeks until we release another episode of, of Little Mountain again. We're going to space them out because there's always a lot of other stuff obviously going on in rock and metal and we also want to keep that stream of stuff going on as well so we can continue to bring you the the latest news and talk with other great people about about books and releases and all of that. So we'll space them out, but we're also going to make it in a way that we're going to attempt to keep a balance of the, a behind-the-scenes person that you may or may not have heard of, and then the next one would be more of a an artist and then back to a behind-the-scenes one and try to flip-flop them as well so we don't you know, front loaded all with all behind the scenes folks and back loaded with all artists and things like that. So uh, just trying to strike a balance and make sure that we, we give everybody, you know, pieces that they're interested in and try to work it that way. Yeah. Well, I, I organized it that way. Now we didn't obviously record them that way, but right. I organized it to get the, the guy we're talking to tonight is Miles Ramsey, who is the founder of mm-hmm. the studio. Like there'd be no studio if, if this guy, Right. You know, it didn't put the money in up front in the beginning. So he has to be first. Yeah. You know, me and you talked about this and we said, right, even though we've got bigger names, mm-hmm. um, we have to put him up front because there's no point in having the name guys on and then him coming on and telling us how the thing was founded. Yeah. That wouldn't make sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we got the four musicians on and we got the, the, the you know, the, the managing guy on and then we got you know, the producer engineer guys on. So it's a, it's a good balance. And I did say a while back that I was hoping to get, um, you know, like a singer and a bass player and right. a drummer and, and a guitarist. And we did. Right. Yeah. And, uh, which is, which is great. So anyway, the first one is, um, the guy called, guy's called, uh, Miles Ramsey. And, um, <laughs> how I got him, uh, he was one of the names Mike Fraser gave me. And, um, I Googled him. And his name came up in some choir that he sings in. Yeah. Right. And I emailed the choir and the, one of the guys in the choir, now it's a long way, long time back. When did we start doing this? Around September, wasn't it? Yeah, something yeah, like that. So yeah, so I, I can't, I can't, sorry, I can't, I can't think of the guy's name who emailed me back and he gave me Miles' email address. And he also said that he did some work in the studio on like some, Aerosmith record or some album that they did like in the 80s and all that and he was down there for a couple of days and he had a great time and I was like 
wow, you know, <laughs> did this guy singing in a choir did some work in, in Little Mountain as well. And so I hit Miles up and um, Miles was ha- very happy to talk to us. Now, I had no idea who this guy was. Yeah. And I, I've often talked to you before about when we do interviews on the show. I, I said, if I don't know anything about a band, I don't, I won't do the interview. Right. But with this, it was like, you didn't know anything about this guy either. Right. Like we, 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 I think when we talked to him in the beginning, we thought that it might be a short interview that he'd tell us how the studio was founded. And then he put the money in and he hung around for a little while and then he got out of there. Mm-hmm. And he ended up being there until the end. Yeah. <laughs> and he had, he's, he was there for all of the albums and he has some fantastic stories. Right. Like I think the, like some of the stories he, he, was, he was telling us, like we were even blown away because like, we didn't know what to expect from this guy. Yeah. And he, he was really, really good to talk to. You know, great memories at the time, very funny guy, just a really, really nice guy to talk to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so that's how we're going to try to structure it is, is that way. And one of the actual final pieces we had to put together, besides the one last interview we were really hoping to get, was I just have to mention the artwork. that When we did Strange Highways, yeah. Dario made a nice piece of artwork for us to use as our more or less uniform graphic for that. People who go up to the website will notice that every episode has its own artwork that, that I put together. Uh, but Dario did the one for Strange Highways, and uh, he did the one for this one as well. And he did a great job on it. You know, Initially, I gave him some ideas. And I have to say, sitting back, that, that it's kind of like you know my ideas were St. Anger. And Dario came in, and he delivered Master of Puppets. Yeah, he did a great job. You know? <laughs> and... Uh, so yeah, I look back at you know what I was kind of gave for him of yeah I'd like to see maybe this or maybe that and yeah I'm glad he went with his gut feeling on what he thought it really needed and did it and it, it looks a great a really great job yeah he did a fantastic yeah. job like, all all you got to do is look when you look at the artwork look at the three albums he is on and then yeah. think of all the albums that aren't on it and how big they were right and that's when you look at the, all you got to do is like. Go on the Wikipedia page and and look at all the albums that were recorded there that were multi-million right. selling albums. It really is an incredible story. Right. And uh, and then just another note, too, is that, you know, for some of these episodes, they will be potentially no music in them or very music light. And then others might be a little more music heavy, especially some of the artist ones, you know, partly with time and flow and all of that. So... Uh, I know you're used to in a typical, you know, focus on metal episode to have, you know, five, six songs. But for some of these ones, it'll definitely either be no, no music at all or, you know, music light. So, yeah, I just want to throw that out there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yes. I think a lot of music in some. Yeah. You got it. You got it with the artists, with the yeah. producer guys and the owner of the place and the manager. Right. They might be a bit light in the, in the Exactly. Music. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's the, the right way to go. But. The stories are great. Yeah. The stories are fantastic. They really are well worth listening. All right. So, you know, having said all of that and warned people up front, then uh, let's go ahead and, and kick off the first episode of our Little Mountain series. Sure. All right, guys. I, I think we're ready to lay this first track down. Take one, roll.
let's take it again. And Gene, yeah. really explore the studio space this time. You got it, Bruce. I mean, really. Yeah. Explore the space. I like what I'm hearing. Go away. Listeners, as part of the Little Mountain Sound project that we're doing for 2015, uh, we have one of the founding guys who helped build the studio on the line, uh, Miles Ramsey. So, how are you doing today, Miles? Very well, thanks. How about you guys? We're doing great. So, can you give us a brief overview of your career before Little Mountain Sound? Of my career, well, yes. um, fundamentally, I was a I was a singer, background singer. I was one of the rare guys that came along that could actually read music and sing it. And uh, so I, I emigrated from California, and uh, I started working pretty quickly um, as a background singer on a television show uh, here in Canada called Let's Go, which was kind of what it was... It was similar to Dick Clark's show, similar to some of the other American shows where the top 40 songs would be performed and before an audience. In this case, there was no audience. But uh, anyway, so then I, uh, I met my future wife, who was one of the other background singers, Corlin Haney, and my future business partner, Brian Griffiths. We were the three background singers on that show. So we, um, we went on to do a number of projects. I had my own show on CBC. I 
we did uh, some uh, group singing kind of stuff, CBC uh, television specials. We did a a number of variety shows, and then budgets kind of dried up in the uh, late 60s, and so we were kind of at a loss to know what to do with our careers. Mm-hmm. So Griff and I and our other partner, Brian Gibson, who we called Hoot, um, decided we would try our hand at jingles. It looked like it was something that we could easily do, and it was uh, something that could be easily marketed, we thought. <laughs> and um, there was a a great deal of... Uh, Superb musicianship in Vancouver. The the musicians here are among the best in the world. So we started uh, doing jingles, but we soon found that we were competing with uh, I don't know jingle companies in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago and Toronto, and we didn't have the technical capability to compete with them. The studios we had here at that time were pretty small and didn't have a lot of resources. But we soldiered on um, until 1973 when we decided, no, if we're going to really compete on a world stage, we need world-class recording capabilities. So that's when we made the decision to build our own studio. Okay. Now, to get, how did the banks take it when you went to get financing to build a studio? Were they overall receptive about it? Like, what was the economy like in Vancouver at the time? You must be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> what we did, I mean, we had been pretty successful in our business. We, we financed it ourselves out of just cash reserves. Wow. and. But that didn't go very far, as we soon discovered. Uh, what happened also was we, we hired a guy named Jeff Turner, who was he, he had an Englishman by origin, but he had emigrated to New York and then found his way to Vancouver, and he'd been engineering on some of our, our jingle sessions in an other studio. And Jeff said, I can build you a studio. I know exactly what you guys need. You know, give me the project and I'll build it. So we said, sure, okay. And he was as good as his word. I mean, he was a very, very capable guy in many, many, many ways. And he uh, he designed what became Little Mountain. And uh, unfortunately, what we were looking for at the time was one studio to record jingles in. And what Jeff had in mind was a giant, you know, conglomeration studio that could accommodate the symphony and and would attract worldwide notice. Well, he went ahead. We didn't know what we were doing. We were in over our heads completely. <laughs> and and uh, so we got about halfway into it and realized we're going broke here. We can't afford to keep doing this. And so... Our general manager at the time, Robin Lecky, went to the bank and said, look, this is what we're doing. This is where we are. Here's where we are. And the banks laughed. And they said, you can't be serious. (laughs) (laughs) 
we are serious. Look, we poured all this money of our own into it. Yeah, but we're not going to put a penny into it. So, um, Robin was pretty resourceful and pretty well connected in this community. And he went to a, well, the biggest broadcasting corporation in Western Canada. It was called uh, Western Broadcasting at the time. And it's gone through a number of name changes since then. But he talked to them. They needed some brownie points with the CRTC to say that they were putting money back into Canadian production. And uh, so this unholy marriage was created. (laughs) Western Broadcasting said, okay, we'll take a 50% interest in your company um, and we will guarantee all the debt. So the bank suddenly decided, oh, I guess these guys are for real. And so we're able to complete the building of Little Mountain. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about the location in Vancouver? What made you decide to build it there? It was a very underdeveloped area of Vancouver at that time. We're talking 1973 here. Mm -hmm. And basically, we were looking for, well, I say we, Jeff Turner was looking for a building that would house what he thought was you know, the perfect studio complex. And we found a building under construction, which was um, 10,000 square feet. And basically it was just an empty shell. And so we signed a lease on that. And then we did all of the interior finishing and, you know, built the studios in there and offices and, and, uh, what a blunder that was because we didn't own it. (laughs) Well, as soon as the uh, landlord saw that, when the time came to renew the lease, he doubled the rate. And we said, what are you talking about? He said, well, it's much nicer now. (laughs) Well, yeah, he did it. (laughs) So lesson learned. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. But at least, I mean, there's a couple of cool things that happened there, right? Because, you know, sometimes when people talk about building a studio and they say, yeah, so we met a guy and then it usually goes down a really kind of a bad road, kind of like the classic <laughs> thing when, you know, when the Beatles opened up, you know, and did Apple and the first guy that was, you know, they had their guy to build the studio. And after months and tons of cash, they went in there and there was basically nothing usable. So it's always kind of that, you know, I'm sure you're very familiar probably with the, the travails they had with building that studio. And yeah, uh, yeah. so, you know, I think it's great that you guys right out of the gate had somebody that was really competent you could count on. And then, you know, for as much as people complain about the whole CanCon requirement in Canada, at least you guys actually got a really cool benefit out of that and being able to continue doing what you wanted to do. Yeah, we did. Interestingly, um, we were kind of, I don't know, poets without honor in our own country. I mean, we were selling our jingles all over North America. We had clients in L.A. and New York and Chicago and Cleveland and Florida and all over the states, and we couldn't get arrested in Canada. Uh, It was very, very strange until finally... You know, we put together some some uh, sample reels of work we had done for major clients in the States. And suddenly, Canadian agencies who were our clients 
decided, oh, I guess these guys are for real. And then we started getting work in Canada as well. So, you know, with, with doing that studio, you know, initially as a jingle studio, and then obviously the, the thing just taking a whole different turn and actually becoming basically a world-class studio, when that was all said and done, were you guys kind of kicking back going like, okay, now what? We've got kind of the keys to the kingdom and all we really wanted to do was jingles? Or did you, you know, start right in with trying to get bands and, and other things in there? Well, we had initially, as I said, wanted a studio. What we wound up with was three studios, and one of them, Studio A, was huge. It could accommodate, and did, accommodate um, the symphony orchestra. When um, Olivia Newton-John had to record Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, in a place on the West Coast that wasn't in the States because their producer was... Um, he didn't have a work permit in the States. So they scouted around and they found our studio and they came up and recorded it there. And we had the whole symphony orchestra, I don't know, 90 pieces or something in Studio A. It was a huge session. Yeah, we had to borrow microphones from everybody in town. And you know, we got it done. It was a big hit record. Yeah. But no, we were not uh, sitting back and counting the money because we were laboring under this enormous debt. I mean, we always had, and it's kind of a cautionary tale for anybody building a studio. We had this giant debt um, because we went in and Jeff had said, look, don't buy crap in terms of uh, equipment. Mm -hmm. So we bought the best there was right off the gate. We had new boards. We had Neumann microphones. We had, well, at that time, <clears throat> I guess it would have been 16-track uh, Scully tape recorders, and that soon gave way to 24-track Studer uh, record tape recorders. Mm, those don't come and No, and, and we had three studios to equip, so... We had this debt that just kept building and building. And so far from sitting back with our feet up, we were sweating bullets all the time to try and make the nut. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it, that's what happens with studios. Uh, the, the capital, you know, to build something that is world-class, the capital cost is enormous. Oh, yeah. And then... You get it built, and you open the doors and say, come on, world, come on in and record your album. And nobody wants to pay for anything. Everybody wants a deal. Everybody wants it on the cheap. Everybody wants a discount. So it's a real struggle. Mm, yeah, definitely. And even with that equipment, like I remember working with some of the, the studios around here, and we'd go in, and, and it'd be guys who, you know, they invested themselves. They, they built these studios, and they've, you know, they've got every penny that they've made invested in these things. And they would be terrified of somebody like accidentally smacking that Newman microphone because, you know, it, oh, no two kidding. or three yeah. grand, you know what I mean? And, and, it, yeah. and all it takes is one, you know, smack with a headstock and that thing is toast. And, and just that whole part of it where they're, they've already got all these dollar signs, and, you know, in their eyes and just that. It's, it's kind of it's very, very stressful to, to be operating that way. Yeah. Oh, is it ever? We had a <laughs> we had a small and when I say small, it was. We had a Neve console, a 16-track, four-bus Neve board 
in Studio C, and it was really for voiceover production and that you know do quick logos and that kind of thing. Mm. And we had been open in that room for I don't know less than a year, and a voice actress inadvertently uh, came in. She didn't. <laughs> she had very poor eyesight, and she stumbled and spilled an entire cup of coffee with cream and sugar into the board. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, my life flashed before my eyes. I mean, it was just horrifying. And, but uh, we also had uh, some of the best tech guys in the world, really did. We had John Vertasic, and nobody was better at... Uh, tech than John Vertasic. We had Ron Vermeulen, which everybody called Ron Obvious. He later went on to build uh, Brian Adams' place here, the warehouse. And, um, you know, they they broke that knee board down and cleaned it up and dried it out, and it was as good as new. Wow. And, and thank, yeah. thank God that that, that, uh, that Rupert Neve actually builds those very, very modular as well. Although people look at it and go, oh, well, you can just unscrew those modules and pull them up. But it's like, no, no, no. There's like a whole rat's nest of stuff on the backside you got to disconnect too. And, and that's where that's the right, know-how yeah. comes is that part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I was at a, a show down in Vegas. Uh, uh, what was it? The broadcasters convention down there. And, you know, there's always all the manufacturers try out the latest and greatest. There was talking to a guy who was, uh, he was a, a designer from me. And I told him we had that board. He said, oh, I love that board. He said, I was originally on the design team that built that board back in the 50s. And I said, no kidding. He says, my favorite board. And, uh, I said, nobody has been able to come close to the sound of a Neve 1073 preamp. I mean, it is just its own thing, and everybody wants it, and nobody else can do it. And he said, yeah, the odd thing is we built them out of spare parts. I said, what? (laughs) Yeah, he said, we went in in post-war, and we went into war surplus places and just bought up whatever we could find. And that's what we lashed together and became Neve console. Wow. The original ones. <laughs> yeah. they, I mean, they are definitely an entity up to themselves. I mean, now they, they even just sell like that freestanding Neve console, just, just that one little preamp channel, and it's like six grand yeah. just to have that piece of outboard gear. They, they are amazing, yeah. though. Yeah, they truly are. All you gotta, yeah. all you gotta do is look at the, the Sound City movie with Dave Grohl, and he shipped the whole thing to his own place. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I eventually had one of those of my own. Um, I had a studio at home that uh, I bought the the console from Jim Valance, who was uh, Brian Adams' songwriting partner. Mm-hmm, yeah. And um, so I bought this Neve sixteen track four bus board from Jimmy. And I used it in my home studio for several years. My son cut his teeth on it. My son, who's now a rock star. And uh, he, uh, he, my son, when he was 12 years old, could run a session on that new console, top to bottom. <laughs> it was such a cool thing to have at the house, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the day came that I had to sell it. 
And this broker, I thought, and he was from your area. He was from Boston. He came out of the woodwork and he kept throwing offers at me. And, and he said, keep the loom, keep the, I just want the preamps. That's all I want. <laughs> but he was, you know, throwing around huge numbers at me. And finally, I, you know, he chased me long enough. I let him catch me. I sold him the board. <laughs> wow. So when it came to managing the studio originally, you got Jeff to manage it for the first couple of years. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Jeff and his wife, Jeannie, they're yeah. kind of a team. And, uh, and then we kind of had a disagreement about, you know, direction. Jeff decided he was going to leave and build his own place, which he did. Mm -hmm. And um, so we had to hire somebody to run that part of the business because we were busy running our fundamental business, which is recording jingles. Mm -hmm. And so we hired a guy named Bob Brooks, who became the manager. And, um, and Bob poured himself into that business. He really did. Kind of under his tutelage, some of our kind of most illustrious uh, engineers and producers uh, kind of came into their own, guys like Bob Rock. Mm -hmm. and uh, Mike Fraser. And, and uh, that was really due to the fact uh, there was a guy here in town who was kind of a, he was a trumpet player, but he had designs on other things, and he's friends with Jim Valance, actually, and he, um, he decided he wanted to be a record producer, so he got into it. He made some good connections along the way. His name is Bruce Fairburn. Mm -hmm. And Bruce was the guy who first brought in a heavy metal band into Little Mountain. And everybody loved it. So then Bruce started bringing more heavy metal bands in. And then pretty soon Little Mountain became known as the, the place to go if you have, you know, big, big hair bands. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And that's what we had. We had them all. Yeah, yeah. And it is pretty amazing, too, when you figure that, you know, on the outside, people, especially, you know, in the 80s, listening to albums, everybody would assume that a lot of these bands all were recording in, you know, either New York or especially in L.A. and stuff. And, and that's even part of why we started to do this project was that, that you know, Little Mountain Studios was kind of like this amazing gem that produced so much stuff. And I don't think a lot of people realize that a lot of this really didn't happen here in the States that all of this stuff really happened up in Canada and you tell yeah. people that and they're really surprised like, well, geez, you know, like, why do they go to Canada? And then you start listing people like Bruce and like Bob Rock and, and, and it's like, oh, okay, now, now we've got the obvious reason. Yeah. Well, it had a, we had a few things going for us. It really was a superb facility. And I'm not saying that because I had a hand in it, but just because it was. We were in the same time zone as L.A. Mm -hmm. You know, we're only an hour and a half north of Seattle. Right. So it was an easy trip to make for whoever needed to make it. So it was uh, a combination of that. And then success breeds success. You know, if you have one band that did well and had a big album, people, you know, especially behind the scenes, people look at that and say, where was this done? Who did it? Who, you know, what, what were the, what were the players? And that's when Little Mountain began to really attract a lot of attention. 
And, I mean, at one point, we would have ACDC in one studio and uh, Motley Crue in the other studio. And we had uh, who Van Halen waiting to come in. And, you know, it just got to that point. And we, as the founders and original guys, we had our offices upstairs. And uh, <laughs> we had our boardroom. Uh, directly over the control room of Studio A. And we, uh, Bob Rock was producing by this time, not just engineering, but producing Motley Crue. As the story goes, Tommy Lee liked to have a big subwoofer right behind him so he could really hear the kick drum. So Bob Rock was never known to do anything by half. He had the thing just cranked wide open. And the first time Tommy Lee hit the kick drum, our boardroom boardroom table moved. It was, <laughs> it was all the pictures on the wall jumped. It was like an earthquake. And I thought a bomb had gone off or something. And I found out, no, no, it's just Tommy Lee's kick drum. <laughs> <laughs> i got to say, Bob did a good job with the drums on that album. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> had a little secret that many, many people tried to figure out, and he, it was a deep, dark, closely held secret, and that was 
behind the studio, bear in mind this building had been built as a warehouse. So behind Studio A was a part of the building that was never developed. It was originally built as a loading bay. And it had this incredible natural reverb. So Bob used to put a speaker out there and a microphone and use it as an echo chamber. Mm. And um, people all over in the industry tried to emulate that, but they didn't have our loading bay, so they didn't... (laughs) They didn't get close to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is, it's cool stuff like that that really does, you know, kind of set studios apart. It's just, you know, something that people would kind of like, just kind of not even think about that much. And it's it just like yeah. cool stuff. I think wasn't it? I think it was was it the Stax Volt Studios? I think that had a they had a giant oil tank they had buried and used that as their reverb tank, like yes, out in the back. That's yeah. Right. I used yeah. stuff like that. So I know that um, we had talked to uh, to James Kotak, and that was one of the things he was he said he was talking all about that whole, you know, using the loading bay, how he just felt that thing was so amazing when the sound that they were getting for his drums and stuff. And that's what it reminded yep. me was that whole buried oil tank thing, which was, I thought, a classic way to get reverb. Oh, yeah. And, you know, at that time, there weren't the vast array of electronics that there are now, mm. you know, where you can simulate anything with a computer and, you know, you can do it in your bedroom, I guess. But back then, the guys who were putting out the really top-end stuff, like Bob Rock, you had to be inventive. You had to, you know, figure out new ways to do things. And he would, he did. And many, many people down the line kept trying to emulate that sound yeah i mean it's definitely a kind of a a lost art like you talk about where now you have so much technology available but it is true you know just even some of the producers would do the old school stuff of trying to get things like a delay or an echo of actually forcing the board into fold back to get it and tricks like that and people could never figure out what they were doing and you know nowadays people just bring up a plug-in and a couple button clicks, and they're like, there you go, Echo, it's all. But I, I used to always miss the fun of actually trying to figure out how to make things you know, happen in the studio without any kind of yeah. extra stuff, yeah. Now, my son, Josh, who is now, he's got his own band, Mariana's Trench, and they're doing extremely well. They, and- they are. They, they are actually my middle daughter. It's her actually, and not even because I'm talking to you, but it's actually her favorite band. Every time they come oh, really? to Boston, she, they they go out, and uh, her and she always drags a huge bunch of people from from college to go with her. And and uh, cool. I, think, I think she has uh, probably tripled their fan base here in Boston just by herself. <laughs> that's that's and, great. Uh, <laughs> she's she's actually she's a really really big fan of them for probably like I want to say like maybe even like four or five years now that she's really been. Could be. Uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's been, yeah, singing their praises. And uh, in fact, she has a, a pair of, of uh, high tops that uh, she will probably never get rid of because they all oh, they autograph the uh, rubber toes on there. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. she, just, she didn't have anything and they were hanging out and uh, they just like, hey, we'll sign your shoes. She's like, all right, cool. <laughs> but, Great. Uh, yeah. Well, Josh um, also does a lot of producing and writing for other people. Hmm. He, he co-wrote and produced. Um, call me maybe hmm. for Carly, and uh, you know he's doing some writing with Chad Kruger and Nickelback, and mm-hmm. so that, you know he's he's developing that side of his, his uh, portfolio. 
but as I said, he could he could run a studio when he was twelve years old, so it's nothing new. <laughs> but he he does that now, and it's a pleasure to see he doesn't just push a button. He goes and tries to figure out ways to make it happen on the floor. It's like when you're making a movie and you do the trick in the camera rather than in post-production, you yeah. know, same idea. And for this uh, current album that he's working on, he, he did, he did a session. He did it over at the warehouse because our studio isn't big enough, but he had 10 drummers. And I said, God almighty, was it a marching band? I mean, what was it? <laughs> and he said, no, he said, I just wanted this thunderous drum sound. And so that's what I did. And I'm dying to hear the results of it. But he does things like that all the time, kind of experimental, tried different things. If it works great, if it doesn't, okay, well, I tried. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's very cool that he, that he went to that degree to do it, too, because a lot of other people would have probably done one drummer and then just said, okay, and I'm going to just copy that into nine other tracks, and I'm going to suddenly yeah. change little things individually with all of them and pretend I had ten drummers. But you really can never duplicate actually doing it with ten drummers. That's right, yeah, and he knows that, and so that's where he went with it. Yeah, and that must have been a mic, like just a mic placement nightmare as well. Like just <laughs> Oh, man. Well, the, the warehouse, I will say this for Brian. He has invested... You guys should see this place. I mean, it's in a heritage building in the oldest part of the city. And there's all kinds of restrictions about what you can do and what you can't do. And requirements for seismic upgrades and blah, blah, blah. So Brian, to his great credit, said, no, I love this building. I want to preserve it. So he built another building inside the building. And that's what the warehouse is. Mm. And he bought every conceivable vintage piece of gear he could find worldwide. He got every microphone known to man there. And, you know, old RCA ribbon mics from the 30s mm. up to a huge array of Neumanns and, and uh, AKGs. And you, know, you name it, they've got it, you know, times 100. And... As a matter of fact, uh, Josh frequently mixes his stuff at the warehouse just because their equipment is so wonderful. My old buddy, guy who came on at Little Mountain as a trainee, is now their chief guy for mixing, Mike Fraser. Mm -hmm. And Fraser goes all over the world to mix for everybody you can name. Mm -hmm. But... His home base is, is at the warehouse. See that? And Mike, we've talked to we've Mike talked before, to Mike. and he's never told us that. So, you know, we have to, <laughs> oh, there you go. Right, we give crap about that. But yeah, yeah, we yeah, uh, you better. Yeah, we love talking to Mike. Absolutely. But yeah, I, I can just I'm just trying to picture in my head like what kind of microphones like. Now, now, of course, you describe the amount of stuff that Brian's got there, so it's like okay, because I'm thinking just the amount of super cardioid mics he was going to need just yeah. on on. It's like oh my god, it's just like my head explodes on it. But um, I know it just sounds cool. It really, really does. Richie's laughing at me because I'm a gear whore. And he's sitting over there. He's laughing at me right now. I, I, I don't play an instrument. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sure baffles and microphones, they must have had, they probably ran on a mic stands because 10 drummers with a full kit set up. You can imagine 
the cabling and the stands and the positioning and the, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's I, insane. My head spins. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. You know, when you talk about the old mics, too, and I was looking at one last weekend, there was, because um, I, you know, I collect gear and guitars and everything, and I'm always buying stuff for the studio. And I did find a dealer that had an old RCA ribbon mic was one of the ones that actually still has an NBC plate on it. It was like 700 bucks. And I was like, Oh, I want to, well, my wife's like, what Johnny are you Carson's doing? Mic. <laughs> you know, she's like, you just bought two side address mics. I don't even know what the difference is between those two mics that came in and all the other damn mics you have. What do you need to spend? I was like, Oh, it's a vintage mic. It's a ribbon mic. It's gonna... You don't understand. You know, her eyes are just rolling back. And then I have to go to the thing. Look how many shoes you have, honey. And then she yeah, doesn't exactly, yeah. yeah, I don't think the shoes cost seven hundred dollars a pair, though. No, they don't. <laughs> well, now that's not the issue. <laughs> Those mics are priceless. Absolutely oh, yeah. priceless. Yeah. You can't duplicate them. Yeah. So, Miles, I just want to ask a question. You were you said earlier on, like you had like Motley Crue and ACDC and all these bands in the studio at the same time. Did you find that that interfered with you getting work in the other areas of the, in the industry? That's a good question. That's a good question. No. Um, a lot of our clients, you know, on the advertising side of the recording business, you know, they're kind of, they're star sluts, you know, they, they are Google-eyed over celebrities just as much as anybody. And so they would like to mingle, you know, in the coffee room, you know, they'd go in there and, you know, there's Brian Johnson from ACTC, holy shit, and they'd love to rub elbows with him or, you know, <laughs> my daughter, who was at that time a pretty young teenager, probably 13 or 14, I'd send her in there to get me coffee, and there's this guy in there, and he turned to her and he said, Hi, I'm John Bon Jovi, who are you? And she said, I'm Angela Ramsey, hi. And he turned around and left, she didn't know who he was. <laughs> <laughs> but the advertising guys really loved that, right? And uh, what drove us out, and in fact, we eventually sold out and moved and built another studio, was the groupies. The groupies were intolerable. They began to vandalize our cars, you know, parked in the parking lot behind the building. There was a thing that happened when we better been in the 80s, I guess, early 90s, where the BC boys started this thing of wearing hood ornaments on a chain around your neck. Yeah. So, and we're all driving, you know, at this point, my partners and I are driving Porsches and Mercedes and nice cars. But once a month, I'd have to replace the hood ornament because <laughs> some kid had to torn it off, you know? And finally, and they would congregate outside the door of the studio. We had to put, you know, severe locks on everything because they you know, stood literally with their noses pressed against the glass trying to look in and see somebody. And it got to be such an enormous hassle just to go to work that we finally said, look, we got to get out of here. And so we eventually moved. Yeah, did any of them ever get in? No, okay. no. Well, I mean, yeah, occasionally, I guess, somebody. But it got to the point where Bob Brooks, uh, literally put security guards out the out of the front door, and uh, we had some really interesting times. Though, um, who now? What the hell's the guy's name? He used to be the lead singer with uh, Van Halen. He did Jump and uh, David Lee Roth. Yeah, yeah, uh, David Lee Roth. 
with him doing an album. inside the, the legendary loading bay. <laughs> and, and then on the outside of the building, he commissioned some artist to paint this giant mural across the back of the building. Uh, well, uh, the city bylaw guys came around and looked at that and said, no, 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 you can't do that. Get that off of there. <laughs> to his great credit, he paid for all of it, but... You know, it was, and Bob at Rock and the guys who were using the loading bay reverb weren't terribly thrilled with the changes because it changed the reflectivity of the surface mm, yeah. by putting a rock climbing wall in. So they had that all ripped out. <laughs> but, you know, wacky things. And, and uh, the men's room downstairs, we had just a kind of a functional men's room. And, uh, God, I'm terrible with names because I'm getting senile. The lead singer with, oh, his daughter's an actress. She was in Lord of the Rings. What the hell is his name? Oh, Steven Tyler. Yeah, yeah, Steven Tyler. Steven Tyler did not like the men's room. So he said, I want you to tear all of this out and put in all new stuff with a shower and a this and a that with gold-plated blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you know, these guys are going to spend maybe a quarter of a million dollars recording in our studio. So, yeah, sure, you bet, Stephen, whatever you want. You know, so 
you know, we had then thereafter this world class. It looked like something out of the Four Seasons. Beautiful men's room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. still there, I think. Yeah. So I, I never asked you, Miles, where did the name, who named the studio originally? Interesting. We were sitting around upstairs in our very unfinished building. Present at that meeting were Jeff Turner, myself, my partners, Brian Griffiths and Brian Gibson, our general manager, Robin Leckie, our sales guy, Charlie Watts. And we were just, we said, we got to come up with a name. And we kicked around various ideas and we kind of concluded that we wanted something that was local to Vancouver and unique to Vancouver. So, and there are a lot of very interesting place names in Vancouver, you know, Coal Harbor or False Creek, or we kicked around all those names. And I finally suggested Little Mountain because we're not, we weren't very far from Little Mountain, just up Canby, well, south on Canby, and you would come to a park called Little Mountain. Queen Elizabeth Park is what it's called, but the locals all know it as Little Mountain. And in fact, that's where the ballpark is, where the Vancouver pro baseball team plays. Mm -hmm. So we all kind of looked at each other and thought, Little Mountain, that's got a very cool kind of, I don't know, kind of an interesting name because it's it's contradictory and it's uh, it's unique and it's totally Vancouver. So we agreed that that would be the name. So you said you uh, you sold the studio. Uh, can you tell us what actually moved in after you sold it? Well, after we sold our interest to uh, our partners, which was still Western Broadcasting, mm -hmm. and you have to bear in mind, at this point, no matter how many big rock star groups came in there, we still hadn't turned a profit. We, you know, we were just breaking even and making the bank payments. And uh, so we we sold it to uh, our half to Western Broadcasting, and they didn't like that much. <laughs> they gulp. What are we going to do with this? And they in turn sold it to Bob Brooks, who had been the general manager for several years at that point. Mm -hmm. Brooks ran it on his own hook for a few years, and then um, he sold it to a family called Levens, the, the Levin family, they owned another studio in town, well, sort of in town, in the burbs in town. And uh, they eventually, you know, ran it into the ground, basically. They didn't do any maintenance. And the, the shine came off of the name, and people were beginning to use Pro Tools on computers. And the big, you know, heavy... Um, technologically superior studios were all faltering at that point, whether it was the record plant or AM or Wally Hyder or us or anybody. We were all kind of, at that point, faltering because technology was eating into the capabilities of the studio. Mm. Yeah, and from what I gather now, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but when grunge blew up in the early 90s, did it, none of the grunge bands came and recorded in Little Mountain, did they? Not to my knowledge. I mean, we had sold the studio by then. They certainly didn't show up on my doorstep. I, I think they recorded in Seattle. I think there there was a studio that was built in Seattle back in the, hmm, I'd say, late 60s, early 70s. 
And it was a pretty decent room. Uh, it was built. Um, the owners uh, were Les Smith, who uh, owned the... Let me think about this. He was a broadcaster. He either owned a radio station or a group of radio stations or a TV station in Seattle. And his partner in the recording studio was Danny Kaye. So, you know, I don't think Danny Kaye was just an investor. But anyway... So K. Smith was, you know, a sizable studio, you know, certainly rivaling Little Mountain at that point. Yeah. <clears throat> and I never really heard anything about any bands coming there. And it was just, you know, one of those things that you develop a kind of a following within the industry. Same thing happened at, at Muscle Shoals earlier, you know, there's just this little hot, tight, not of creativity and yeah. capability, and we got that reputation, and they didn't think at Case Smith Studios, but it was a perfectly good place, and maybe that's where the grunge guys cut their teeth, and eventually they would have gone down to LA, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. was that one that was, what else, it was Bad Animal Studio around Seattle too, right? Yeah, 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 and then and then whatever the one that Sub Pop was using, it was a little indie studio. So yeah, it's a couple. That uh, were in there. I think it's called Platter and Din. Could be. Yeah, I don't remember, yeah. but you, you're probably right. Yeah, you know what's interesting is you know when we talk to some of the people about recording at Little Mountain, a lot of people looking in from the outside, and you talk about all the people that, were, that are there at once, and you know you you look at like a lot of videos and things of studios in LA and you just get this impression that, wow, this must've been this massive party scene up there. And it's interesting that everybody we talk to all says, Nope, we all were, you know, we'd meet each other in the coffee room, say hi or whatever. We'd go right back to our studios and, and work. And it's just, it's, I think that's a pretty amazing environment that you guys were able to have all these, you know, big egos and everything all in one place, but they were all still focused on their individual projects and kind of not spinning out of control and stuff. And uh, that was just, it's just pretty cool to hear that. Yeah. And it was a cool kind of vibe going on there where nobody was there to impress somebody else. Mm. They were there to work. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that kind of pervaded everybody that came through and big guys would come through who David Foster, David Foster is an old, old, old friend. He used to play on jingles for us back in the sixties. <laughs> and yeah, now he's the CEO of Verve records. But anyway, he would be, you know, by that time, David had moved to LA, but he kept pretty strong roots here in DC. He's from Victoria. And uh, he would show up in town occasionally, and we'd get together and laugh and scratch. And then David wanted to come in and do a bunch of sessions. This was in the 80s, so he was probably working on the theme for the Olympics in Calgary. And he wanted to do some sessions with the symphony. And everybody said, terrific, okay. Can you and David's management people said, "Well, we need to do it." Blah blah blah. This these dates and I'm sorry, the answer is no. We can't do that. You know, we have ACDC in there at that time. Well, can't they move? No. <laughs> you know, once it's booked, it's booked, and that's the end of that story. You know, and so and you know, I mean, David never played the card of, "Ah, look, I'm an old friend." He never did that. He just said, "Okay, we'll wait," and he did. But you know. There's, you'd search hard and long to find a more, what, illustrious career in the music business than David's. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he, he, 
he recognized this is the way things are, you know. Yeah. So just one final question from me, Miles. Um, do you remember any band originally going up there and they were very apprehensive about actually recording in Vancouver, but actually ended up loving it? Gosh, there probably are some, you know. Um, <clears throat> I personally have no knowledge of that. Every, I mean, there were bands that came up and um, worked for like a month or more on an album and it did nothing, you know, they yeah. vanished without a trace. Uh, there was a band from New York, God, what was that guy's name? And it was very interesting, inventive, uh, very difficult music. And I listened to all the final mixes. Uh, Dave Slagger had produced all of, or uh, recorded all of it. And I thought, wow, this is really good stuff. And it went nowhere. It sank without a trace. And there was another band from Seattle, called Bighorn, and this is in the era of big hair bands, right? Mm -hmm. They came up, and they were, they were there for weeks, and did this big album, signed to Columbia, lots of press, you know, press conferences, opening parties, and nothing. Not, not even a blip on the radar. So those things happened, you know? I mean, somebody paid the bills and did all the work. Yeah. Occasionally, we would do a project, and you know, get stiffed and you have to go chase them. But, you know, that's part of any business, really, you know. Yeah. Chase them in the Porsche. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Without a hood on them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, anything in the entertainment business is like that. I, I can remember, you know, you know, back in the in the eighties, working even like local crew here, and it was always a thing when you, you would be at the bank first thing the next morning to, to be the first one to cash your paycheck because That's if you right, waited yeah. till the afternoon, you probably weren't going. There wasn't going to be money left to get to get a cash. Yeah, <laughs> the, the Robin Williams quote from the old Johnny Carson show years ago is. Carpe per diem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose with, with a lot of bands like Aerosmith and Motley Crue, like they were freshly sober at the time, so I think getting them up to Vancouver away from their, their so-called comfort zone for months on end was probably good for them. It was maybe a strategic move on their management's part. You know, I, I you don't know the backstory of a lot of this, you know, yeah. but they could come up there, they'd be separated from all the evil influences in their lives, Mm -hmm. and they would turn out a good product that sold millions of records, and that's that makes everybody happy. Yeah. Conversely, Metallica decided after recording at Little Mountain that, oh, they love that studio so much, they're going to replicate it. They wanted to build that studio in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. They had a building down there, so they hired our tech guy, John Vertasic, to design and build a studio for them and they and he did and bob rock used to go down and produce metallica albums at their studio and if you've ever seen the documentary called some kind of monster yep. mm -hmm. bob had to be therapist for those guys because they were in their environment they they hadn't separated themselves from that vibe at all and it was just pulling teeth to get an album done. Yeah. And I think Bob wound up playing bass on some of it because the bass player was too wrecked to be able to. And I'm, I'm betting you that, that when they did it, because I know that they also use that as their load-in, load-out facility for tours and everything, so um, I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if, uh, you know, Bob Rock set up mics and a speaker in the loading dock there to kind of replicate that stuff. So. You know, and it could have happened. Yeah. I mean, 
Bob eventually moved to Maui and built his own studio there, and he bought the one of the original Neve boards that we had at Little Mountain. He bought it and moved it over there. And and John Vertasic again, the, the king of tech, would go over to Bob's place in on Maui and you know sort things out for him. Bob also bought the piano that we had in Studio B. Hmm which was a highly treated piano. It was extremely bright. And he moved that over there, and he tried to replicate Little Mountain at his place in Maui. Cool. He got pretty close, I think, and uh, he done a lot of albums over there. And then who didn't want to go to Maui to record, you know? There you go. Exactly. Absolutely. So one last question for me, Miles. Taking out the fact that, you know, I think that all your involvement, your experience in the music industry is probably, you know, rubbed off greatly on your son and it probably helped him along with his success. So taking that out of the equation, would you do it all again? Oh, yeah, sure. With Josh and with my daughter and, you know, my kids, I told them all when they were young, look, the music business is treacherous as hell. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you to not do it. Because it's been very, very good to me, you know. But I gotta warn you, it's the most precarious living you can make. Uh, you know, most of the time you'll starve to death and we're, you know, be eating beans. But the artistic rewards are so great that it kind of compensates. And you know, so would I do it again? Sure, I would. Yeah. We, you know what? It was fun to go to work. Mm. I would go to work, I would do something different every day. It might be a voiceover, I might write a, an arrangement for a band, I might uh, you know, write some scripts, I might sit in on somebody else's session and do something, or I might sing. It was fun. It was fun going to work, and we had this amazing facility with talented people. There's nothing like hanging out with and working with people who are extremely talented. Mm. And uh, they, they could be plumbers. But everybody's good at something, and it, I was lucky enough to fall into this hotbed of creativity where the people around me were all so talented, great musicians, great singers, and, you know, it was all fun. Awesome. Well, well it's, this has been an absolute blast. Absolutely, yeah. And we've got more interviews to do, and you're the second one we've done. I think this project, if it gets going the way we, we hope it gets going, is going to be something else. Oh, that'll be awesome. Well, thanks very much, guys. It's been my pleasure. No problem, Wells. Thanks. We really appreciate you taking the time today and uh, spending a little time with us, and uh, maybe we'll talk to you again. Okay, you bet. Talk awesome. to you soon. All right, thanks, Miles. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Bye. You bet. Bye. All right, so there you go. You survived the first episode of our Little Mountain series and I uh, hope, you know, you start to have a little bit more appreciation about this little studio up in Vancouver. And, uh, you know, it was great to get Miles Ramsey on and, and really get some of that background story from him as well. So uh, more more good stories definitely on the way. Uh, one of the ones that uh, is coming up, I think our next one will be an artist one and we'll be featuring uh, John Karabi. Yeah, correct. That one there uh, is partly inspired by our friends over at the Decibel Geek show. And they had a great two-part episode they did with, with John in uh, December talking about the self-titled Motley Crue album. And that got Richie and I thinking about, gee, you know, he might be a good guy to get on on there. I thought it. Then I suggested it to Richie, and he was like, holy crap, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, and, definitely. And uh, he, he went out and he made that one happen. Like, within a day, we had, we had John scheduled to come on. So I think the next one we're going to do is going to be uh, an artist one with John Karabi. And uh, he had some great stories, and uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy that one. Yep, definitely, definitely. So tons more audio to go. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, so with that, I know this has been kind of a long episode. I think we need to, to get the heck out of here. Obviously, if you're digging this one, then uh, you want to catch up with us on focusonmetal.net, focusonmetal.blogspot.com, or on Twitter or on Facebook. You know, lots of places to get a hold of us. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's all out there. So um, any last words there, Richie? No, no last words. Nothing, no last words again. Keep all right. Up, keep going. Keep going. I know. We are. More audio. More audio. More editing. Editing. It's my life. <laughs> editing audio. All right. Cool. And, uh, you know, obviously, for those of you listening to us on Internet Radio, uh, we really appreciate you guys listening every week. Uh, it's it's great to be on the stations. It just seems like as the months go by, we get more offers to be on more stations as well, which is great to get the word out. And uh, so, yeah, it's been, it's been a good year so far. Definitely a good year. With some good music. We've had some good guests. We got this project to roll out, yep. which is uh, what ten episodes. So that's two and a half months yeah. of episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Besides everything else that we do, right? Um, we've got other interviews we've already done. Yeah, you know some career ones we still have to run, and then we're going to get hit up with the, this is coming out. Can you promote the band? Yep. So yeah, same old, same old. Yep. It's uh, all good though. It's all good. That's yep. right. So uh, that's it for this week. Until we talk to you again next week, then uh, have yourselves a good metal week. And remember, focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. Go home.